This podcast is brought to you by Bruner Communications, your best resource for public speaking, presentation, and storytelling skills. Visit lizbruner.com and take your skills to the next level. If all we get in life is what we deserve, we would never get what we demand. Profound words from my guest who says her unique superpower is helping get people unstuck. Hello, everyone. Welcome to my podcast, Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. My guest is a best-selling author, keynote speaker, executive coach, and entrepreneur. Laura Gassner-Odding, welcome to the show. Hey, Liz. It is great to be here. I'm so thrilled that you're here. And I I should add, you are also a mother of two and a marathon runner, right? (laughs) (laughs) I am a mother of two and a marathon run walker. (laughs) Run walker. Well, you just competed and completed running in the Boston Marathon. Congratulations. This is not your first Boston, right? So how are you doing today? <laughs> um, it is my third Boston, my fourth marathon. And I have to say it is my best one yet, mostly because I ran in 2012 and 2014, having never run a mile in my life until I turned 39. And I ran in 2012, having just turned 41. And so I was not strong, but I was determined. And so I (laughs) ran, if you remember, it was 92 degrees that day. So it was very hot. I basically took me five hours and four minutes. It was just awful. I didn't know my name by the end. And I was so hurt and injured. And then a friend of mine called me the next day and she's like, how are you feeling? And I was like, I'm feeling sad. Like I trained so hard and I didn't get the marathon I wanted. And she's like, you know, what would make you feel better? Maybe if we ran a fall marathon, like, I don't know, say Chicago, and we could train in the summer, and then it'll be beautiful in the fall, and it'll be great. And I was like, okay, that sounds good. Let's do that. And she's like, good, because I signed us up. It's in six months, so we should probably take a couple months off and then get to training. So I ran two marathons in 2012. I was never going to run another marathon again. And then as you know, 2013, the bombing happened, and I was very close to a lot of people who were affected. So I was like, 2014, I'm going to do it. So I went from having never run a mile to running three marathons in two years and all the parts of me were broken. And then I discovered actually working out, lifting up weights, <laughs> getting stronger. So I'm stronger at 50 than I was at 40. And I am, I would say, relatively unscathed from yesterday, which is sort of a revelation. You know, we talk about living your best life. And I think one of the ways to live your best life is to, as we get older and we move through different seasons of our lives to know that we can keep getting stronger and Mm -hmm. fitter and find layers, especially as women inside of ourselves that are not what we thought we'd be when we were younger. So that's that's how I'm doing today. (laughs) I love it. Fantastic. Congratulations. It's so impressive. While you're training and running 26.2 miles, other people are running a different kind of race. Many people feel, Laura, that they're on this hamster wheel. They're They're doing more work, but they're not necessarily work that matters. They probably felt that way before the pandemic, but perhaps people of all ages are now waking up and asking, is that all there is? You yourself had that epiphany more than 20 years ago. On paper, you're the epitome of success, but you have said that you felt empty and even like a fraud. What was going on? So, you know, I did all the right things, right? I I went to the right school. I got the right job. I married the right husband. I lived in the right house, had the right kids. Thankfully, the right husband remains the right husband. But the job, the college, all of it, 
I think I lived a life that was the life that maybe my parents wanted Mm -hmm. and couldn't have, or maybe the ones that they saw their friends' kids having and they thought might be the right ones for us, or maybe it was what was on television or now with, you know, social media. I think we're all handed this idea of success of what it's supposed to look like. Like, Liz, do you remember when you were in high school or college, you had a conversation with like a college counselor or a job counselor, a career counselor who was like, this is, this is what qualifies for a good job. Mm-hmm. It's the, the prestige of the organization, like how good it's going to look on your resume. It's the boss that's going to inspire you and invest in you. It's the skills you're going to pick up. It's the scale of impact, the scope of change. It's the money you're going to make. It's, you know, they gave you a list of things that allowed you to rate if the good job was good. But what I didn't get, and I don't know if you got, but it seems to me over 20 years of executive search and thousands of interviews that I've done with people, none of us were told to prioritize that list in a way that makes the good job good for us. Mm-hmm. And then we end up going full tilt. We do all the jobs and we lean in, we do everything we're supposed to do. And then we look around at 30, at 40, at 50. And we're like, you know, the decisions that I made as a 15, 16, 17, 18 year old, there were the decisions that were going to impact the entire rest of my life. I made those decisions before I had a frontal lobe. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, the part of your brain that dictates good, logical, sound decision making. And so is it any wonder that we wake up one day and we're like, you know, that job, that path of success was right. It just wasn't right for me. It may have been right back then, but not today. Yes. Politics has always fascinated you. And during grad school at George Washington University, you ended up as a presidential appointee in Bill Clinton's White House, where you helped shape AmeriCorps. That's a pretty big deal. How did this work fuel your soul and your entrepreneurial spirit? Well, we got to take it back to how I got there in the first place, which was that I was following everyone else's path to what I was supposed to be doing. Right. And I was in law school, right? I was in law school. Like, Of course you were in law school, right? Of course. <laughs> right. I mean, I, like you, you could throw a stone and hit a, you know, an unhappy lawyer or a, what people call themselves a, a reformed lawyer. I'm a reformed law student. I didn't even make it that far, <laughs> which my lawyer friends will tell me makes me smarter than them. But I think actually they're smarter than me. They figured it out. I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and I was righteously indignant about the state of the world. And I was like, I'm going to solve all the problems. This is what I'm (laughs) going to do. It was all about me. I was going to be the solution. And Susan Day was on LA Law, and she was dating Harry Hamlin, and it seemed so just glamorous. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do. And on the very first day of law school, I was the kid that the law professor called on, you know, Socratic (laughs) method. And ask question after question after question. And I'm proud to say I went about 40 minutes before I just dissolved into a puddle of tears. Like I just couldn't, I just, I didn't know any more of the answers. And I was the kid who, you know, the teacher decided to make an example of. And that was the day I decided that I didn't want to be in law school. So I did what any unhappy 20 year old would do is I dated a guy who was absolutely terrible for me. (laughs) It was raining one day. This is a shaggy dog story, but I promise it was a good ending. The guy was raining one day and the guy was like, I'll just, I'll stick your bike in the back of my car. I'll give you a ride back to your apartment. But first I want to stop at this guy's campaign office. He's running for president. And I was like, Governor who? From where? Arkansas? Arkansas. Not (laughs) a chance, right? Like George H.W. Bush had just won Desert Storm. He had a 91% approval rating. The Democrats were like grasping for some sacrificial land they could throw on the ticket because he was clearly going to win. And I was like, not a chance. So then I walked into this tiny little strip mall office in Gainesville, Florida. 
kids, if you're listening, this is how we used to find out information. You actually have to go somewhere, get a piece of paper. <laughs> internet what? <laughs> right. The internet, the internet. I literally worked in the White House before email, right? There's no internet. He was like going to get some paper from the front desk about, you know, this guy, Bill Clinton's stance on certain issues. And I was watching this tiny little black and white TV in the corner where then Governor Bill Clinton was giving this impassioned speech about service, this idea of community service in exchange for college tuition. And in that moment, I went from I can help, I can solve the problems to that needs to happen. That guy has to get elected. How do we get him elected? And so I started volunteering. About two weeks later, all four principals, Bill and Hill and Al and Tipper, all came to Gainesville, Florida, and we got 36,000 people to show up in this tiny little town. So the national office was like, who are those volunteers? So I got offered a position on a campaign, which paid me all the idealism and ramen soup I could eat and gave me a reprieve from law school. So I ended up in the White House because <laughs> of this idea of service. And I was like, that's it. I end up in the White House. I'm wearing my mother's like Alexis Carrington suits from the 1980s. <laughs> With the big shoulder pads. <laughs> big shoulder pads. When Joe Biden was elected, there was a big news story about how we took the rugs and the um, drapes from Bill Clinton's Oval Office and hung them in his. And I like went into my office and I pulled the pictures down off the walls. And I'm like, look, kids, it's the same decoration. And of course, there's pictures of me and, you know, me and Bill Clinton in the photo. And all my kids could say were like, mom, what are you wearing? <laughs> So, you know, you do this thing. It sounds really cool. But in the end, all your kids notice are your 1980 shoulder pads. <laughs> exactly. So this whole idea of service and, and really feeding your soul ends up leading you to many leadership roles in nonprofit search firms. And you have done a lot of things. I'm, I'm jumping fast forwarding a little bit here. But there was a point where you felt your career was at a crossroads. You had just given birth mm -hmm. to your first child and quite unexpectedly, maybe even by accident, you also gave birth to your business, ultimately leading to a company with a philosophy of serving both clients, your team, and yourself equally. Pro tip before I tell the story, do not start a business at the same time that you start your family. That is not what I would recommend. Not a good, However, not a good career path? <laughs> it wasn't a good career path, but it was an exhausting yeah. career path. So four years into being in the White House, We'd created national service. We had the swearing in on the South Lawn. It was incredible. We, we, it was working, right? I'd done what I'd come there to do. And I went to the, the man who ran the Office of National Service, a gentleman by the name of Eli Siegel, who ran the 92 campaign. And he was heading back out to the 96 campaign. And I was like, all right, Eli, I'm ready to go. Let's go. And he looked at me in a way that only a, like a mentor and a father figure could do. And he basically said, oh, you're kind of too old to get back on a campaign bus and eat cold pizza and sleep on high school gymnasium floors. I was all of 25. It's like <laughs> 11 to in campaign years. And you're kind of too young to be, the, to be the domestic policy advisor. So you should go talk to my friend, Arnie Miller. He runs the biggest search firm in the country that does specifically nonprofit work. And he'll find you a job for four years. You'll hide out in the nonprofit sector and then you'll come back and do something big on Al Gore's presidential campaign. And I said, great. Three days later, I'm sitting down at a coffee shop at a hotel with Arnie, and I'm realizing his office is in Boston. And the guy I'm dating now, who was a much better guy, who's the husband I mentioned earlier, <laughs> he was about to move to Boston. I was like, your office is in Boston. You know what? Forget about finding me a job. I want to come work for you. And he was like, you should come work for me. And I was like, great, I'll take it. What do you do? And I became a headhunter. What happens is when you leave a place like the White House and you don't have any ostensible skills whatsoever, but you have a Rolodex that can choke a horse, it turns out that executive search is an excellent job. So I went to go do this. 
I worked for him for five years. I learned from the best and the brightest about how to do this work for organizations that are weaving the civic infrastructure of our country for major foundations, advocacy organizations, research institutions, universities. I mean, just everybody who's doing good stuff. Then I had this moment of rage because I had this realization that the way that the typical executive search firm works, one third of the first year's cash compensation is what you get paid for finding a CEO for something. It wasn't necessarily working for what mattered to me. So if you're looking for, say, the chief strategy officer for the Kellogg Foundation, for example, major international foundation, that's a lot actually easier of a search than if you're looking for a chief development officer, a fundraiser for a local domestic violence shelter. It's harder work. There's not as much prestige. You're not going to make as much money. There's skills that you need are outsized compared to the amount, you know, what they pay. And what I realized was it was costing those smaller organizations so much more of the percentage of their budget. And we at the search firm were being incentivized to work on the bigger searches. Mm -hmm. We were being incentivized to give basically the last 5% of our time to the organizations that I felt needed us the most. And so I marched into Arnie's office with, you know, my Jerry Maguire uh, <laughs> manifesto and my, you know, fishbowl under my arm. And I was like, there's a better way. And he was like, there's the door. And basically <laughs> what he said was, you're welcome to stay here and we love you and we love your work and you can stay here and do it our way. But if you can't, then you can't and you need to go. Mm -hmm. So I was about 11 months pregnant with my first <laughs> child and I marched out of the office and I started my own firm, but I didn't really. I marched out of the office and then I gave birth. Uh, I had 24 hours of labor and an unplanned C-section. And six weeks later, I'm sitting at my kitchen table with like this stranger in my arms. Like, I don't know who you are, but you came out of my body six weeks ago and I guess we'll kind of get to know each other. And I'm still having trouble walking to the bathroom by myself. And I get a phone call from an old friend of the White House who says, and I quote, so, ew, I heard you had a baby. Um, <laughs> cool. Cool, I guess. But um, hey, listen, are you still doing search? Because our executive director just resigned and we need a search firm. And I was like, uh, well, yeah, yes, sure I, I am. am. <laughs> As a matter and of fact. And she was like, great. What are you going to charge me? And I was like, a hundred dollars an hour. <laughs> and she was like, great, send me a contract. So I literally like with the one free hand, open up my laptop and I punt and peck with my index finger, like how to write an executive professional contract. <laughs> and I wrote a contract and I sent it to her and I had no idea what I was going to do, but I was like, we're going to keep working with nonprofits. I want to work at the professional level. I want to advise them. And I don't want anyone to think it's just me. So we'll be a group. So my search firm was named the Nonprofit Professionals Advisory Group which is the worst possible name in terms of marketing. But that's what happens when you start a firm, when you like literally still have Pitocin and codeine in your body. And a six-week old on your arms, right? <laughs> so, you know, it's funny because I tell you that whole crazy story and then the other crazy story about getting to the White House, because I think a lot of people can look at my life and say, it's amazing. Everything you touch turns to gold. You're so successful. You're mm. a marathon runner. You're a mom. You're an entrepreneur. But the truth is, it's messy. Like life is really messy. Right. And if you want to live your best life, the magic happens in the mess. And so I created this firm. And what happened was I set up an entirely different business model that allowed my clients to hire me based on the complexity of their work and also to teach them what we were doing. So that big Kellogg Foundation search, 
would actually pay for the domestic violence shelter surge and leave the capacity so that that shelter could find more people in the future. And all the people from the big firms were like, you're leaving so much money on the table. And I'm like, it's the nonprofit sector. The need is endless. Okay. Like (laughs) I'm not worried. And not only that, I set up the firm so that I was maximizing for personal flexibility and impact in the world. I didn't maximize for profit because I feel like as an entrepreneur, you can maximize like those are the three choices, personal freedom, impact, and profit. You can pick two of the three and you can make all of your decisions based on two of the three. You can't do all three or you're going to, it's not going to work, but we did, everything was based on personal freedom, flexibility, um, and impact in the world. And all the big firms called us the mommy firms until then suddenly some of their non-moms and non-dads started calling us up to want to work for us. And it turns out in the end, that firm grew a hundred percent every year for the first 10 years, continued to grow for the next five years. And that's when I sold it to the women who helped me build it. And it's not such a mommy firm anymore. It's actually been listed as one of the fastest growing, one of the best search firms in the country. So, you know, I think if you are guided by what matters to you, then you do your best work. And when you do your best work, you get busier and busier and busier. So true. You have also written a couple of books. The first one was Mission Driven, Moving from Profit to Purpose, which really speaks to what you did with the nonprofit professional advisory group. And then your last book is Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life. And I just finished reading it over the weekend, and it is filled with so many great stories and lessons from your 20-plus year career where you studied, recruited, and, and really helped leaders through massive change. And there are so many important points in this book. I want to touch on one of them that's incredibly important. There are many lessons in this book, so I encourage people to read it. But in order to become limitless, you must achieve consonance. And there are four elements of consonance, calling, connection, contribution, and control. And you believe that we need all four of those to go from confusion to clarity. It's a little bit of a different take on that list that your career counselor gave you in high school or college. Exactly. Which is like bigger, better, faster, more. The fastest and most expedient path to the corner office is the only one that matters. What we've been told by lean in, Mm -hmm. say yes to everything, figure it out later. It's not about that. It's about what actually gives you consonants. People are like, consonants? What's consonants? What does that word mean? (laughs) What does that word mean? The book was originally going to be called Consonants, Doing Work That Matters. And my friend was like, nobody's going to buy a book that they don't know the word on the cover. (laughs) (laughs) Let me just give you a lesson from your nonprofit professionals advisory group naming days. (laughs) (laughs) Consonants, you've heard the word because you've heard its opposite, dissonance. And dissonance is that like, cacophonic organ rejection feeling inside of you. You're like, I have to just go far away from this thing. I don't know where I'm going, but it's not this right now. Kind of like when somebody handed me a burger after the marathon yesterday and I was like, I don't know. I don't know what I want, but it's not right now. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, you've had those moments where you're like, I don't know what's right, but I know this is wrong. And a lot of us are in that place. And especially now after the pandemic, but it turns out that's been happening For years, the Mm -hmm. pandemic just put a very fine lens on it. You know those moments where the very best of what you're called to do, the thing you love to do, is being called upon to solve a problem that you actually care about, and you're being rewarded for solving that problem in some way that is financially, emotionally, karmically interesting to you. Mm -hmm. Those are the moments, Liz, where you could walk through walls. You can 
leap over mountains. You, you can climb through fire. You're just, you are limitless, right? You're unstoppable and you feel it. I've had those moments where I'm driving home from a meeting with a new client and I just, I know that I can help them. And my heart is beating so fast. I can like feel it on the hood of my car outside. Mm. Those energy moments. And we don't have them because we're so busy pursuing someone else's definition of success. Mm -hmm. In my work as an executive recruiter, the job description is basically this. Get hired by an organization to fill a very senior position. Figure out what that position is and what it calls for. And then call every single one of the best and the brightest people in the world who do exactly that thing and try to recruit them away to come work for your client. You have to call the bold-faced names, the super successful people and say to them, hey, I'd like to turn your life upside down. Now, that sounds like a hard job, except it's not. It's not It's not a hard job. And why isn't it a hard job? Because everybody's searching. Because everybody's searching. And we used to say all the time, everyone's looking for a new job. They just don't know it yet. But here's the thing. Right. I used to call the most successful people in the world, and they would call me back. Because despite all that success, they weren't really all that happy because they had right. the full list, all the check boxes, all full. And yet they still felt empty because they had success, but they didn't have happiness. And we are told from the moment we come out of the womb, if you're successful, you will be happy. And it turns out that that's not true. If you're successful, yeah, you might have a fancy office. You might have a fancy car. You might have a nice golf game on the weekend. You might have a lot of money in your bank account, but you might be missing something that matters. And so what I learned is that there were a handful of people that I couldn't, over the course of 20 years, a handful of people that I could not recruit away. <laughs> and they were happy. And what gave them the happiness was consonants. They were doing the thing that mattered to them. And I started looking at them and I started looking for more people like them. And then I started looking at my own life. And what I realized was there are these four elements, as you mentioned, calling, connection, contribution, and control, that each one of us in some way, in some form, in some shape, need at different moments in our lives. And you don't need all of all of them, but you need some of each of them. And it's up to you at every age and at every life stage to decide what you need of each of them. So we have calling. Calling is that organizing principle. It is the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning. It inspires you. It might be a leader you want to serve. It might be a cause that you want to solve. It might be a business that you want to build, a bottom line you want to grow. It could be a family that you want to nurture. It's just the thing, your raison d'etre, the thing that you care about more than anything else. Calling. Connection. Connection answers the question, does your work actually matter? Does the work you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis actually get you closer or farther from that calling? Mm -hmm. Third is contribution. Contribution is really about you. Is this job contributing to the kind of life that you want to have, the lifestyle that you'd like to live? Is it giving you the flexibility that you want, the money that you want? Is it allowing you to manifest your values on a daily basis? Is it building your career trajectory in ways that make sense for you? And then lastly is control. And control is basically how much control do you have? How much personal agency mm -hmm. do you have about the teams to which you're assigned, the money that your hustle is going to bring you, the way that your work is recognized? How much control do you have? over how much your work connects to that calling and how much it contributes to your life. As I mentioned, each of us at every age and at every life stage have very different needs. When I was 20 years old and dropping out of law school and joining that presidential campaign, I had all the calling in the world. I was inspired <laughs> out the wazoo. But I was getting coffee for the guy who got the coffee for the guy who got the coffee. 
I had no connection whatsoever. I was like at the peon's peon. In terms of contribution, as I mentioned, I was getting paid ramen soup and idealism. But if the guy won, I might have a pretty interesting career trajectory. And whoa, was I manifesting my values. And in terms of control, I had none. I didn't know they were going to send me to Des Moines or Dubuque. It didn't make a difference. Like it just didn't matter. But I didn't need those things. I was 20. 30 years later, I'm 50 years old. I have one kid who just went to college, one kid who's about to go to college, and I want to have a lot of control because I'm not going to get on a plane and be gone for four days for like a quarter of my fee if I'm missing out on these very last amazing moments of them being home. Mm -hmm. Things are very different at every age and at every life stage. I was happy sleeping on those high school gymnasium floors then. Now I'm kind of a princess. <laughs> not anymore now. <laughs> you know, I like, I'm okay camping as long as the camper drives up and parks the Four Seasons. You know what I mean? I'm like, <laughs> it's called glamping. It's called glamping. <laughs> and I think those ages and life stages are probably every seven to 10 years, things change. If you choose to have children, you have children, they grow up, they leave. Maybe you've ascended to a certain level of your job. You know how people who count on you, maybe you've got aging parents. Things change. And even if, things don't change in your life, you know, there's this thing called the global pandemic, right? So like the world changes also. What I like to ask people to do when I have, you know, quizzes online that people can take and it's described in the book and in the course that I have is to help them figure out how much calling, connection, contribution, and control they have in their lives and how much they want in their lives. And then in the book, as you know, it goes through how to change yourself, change your workplace, or change your entire career in order to get more of what you want and trade out a little less of what you don't need as much anymore. Absolutely. I love how you have really empowered yourself to carve out your own path and live your best life. And that's what this show is all about. Ladies and gentlemen who are listening, if you want to learn more about Laura, her books and the work she's doing and the courses that she talked about, you can go to her website. It's lauragassneradding.com, lauragassneradding.com. And we have a link for her website in our show notes. Laura, it's been so wonderful to have you join me today. And thank you for encouraging all of us to find our true calling so that we can live our best life. Well, thank you for having me. I'm a little like post-marathon hyper this morning. So <laughs> you're still on the adrenaline high. I love it. <laughs> People might want to go back and listen to this at like half speed. <laughs> oh, no, it's been great to have you here. And I want to say to all of our listeners, may all of you find the courage to carve out your own path so that what you do matches who you are or who you want to be. And I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. I'd love to hear from you. Please write a review, subscribe, tell your friends about this show. Help spread the word so that we may all live our best life. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self check out fasttwitchmedia.space.